you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 1. Now, I normally do a lot of, um, a lot of what I say is, is I'll read a text and then I'll talk about it. But tonight I'm going to be sticking a little closer to my iPad here because a lot of it is stories and facts I don't want to mess up and actual quotes um, from Martin Luther King Jr. And so I want to get those right tonight. So if I'm reading a little bit tonight, you'll have to excuse me, but I want to get it right. And I do feel like we're going to learn something together as we study his life. Amen. Isaiah 1, uh, verse 17, we're going to put that on the screen for you. It says, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, and plead for the widow. How many of you know who, who this commandment is coming from? Anybody? Spoken through the prophet Isaiah, but who's ultimately the one, the author of this statement? God himself. So let's talk about this for a moment. If one of the commandments that God has given us is to learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, de defend the orphan, and plead for the widow. How many of you know this is a command? It's not a suggestion. It's not like something the Lord said to us and said, hey, if you get bored, you might want to think about defending the widow or pleading for the widow or defending the orphan. This is, not a, this is not something that's kind of a suggestion. This is a commandment spoken through the prophet Isaiah to God's people, those that believe in him. Learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, and defend the orphan. I want to kind of set the stage for what was going on during the time that Martin Luther King Jr. finally answered the call. And I'm going to kind of tell you how that happened to begin to lead a protest at the time or a boycott at the time. Here's a couple stories. I want to read a couple of these to you so you can kind of understand what was happening. Because I feel like the further we get removed from the civil rights movement, the easier it is to actually forget what was really going on at the time. But it was ugly. Amen? It was ugly. And so uh, this is one story. There was, there was a, this, the, the site was the state capitol grounds in Jackson, Mississippi. And on a certain Sunday morning in 65, you, if you were there, you'd have seen a pretty strange sight. And the sight was simply this. Across the street was a large church. The top of the front steps stood a row of white ushers. Not what they were wearing, the color of their skin. Arms linked, barring the way to the doors. There were four or five black men, conservatively dressed for church, standing on the lower steps, facing the doors. And as one of these men approached the top step, an usher disengaged his arm and smashed the would-be visitor in the face, send, sending him sprawling down the step. Inside, the congregation was singing the opening hymn, Love Divine, All Loves Excelling. I could get really off track with that one, but I'm not going to. <laughs> Enough said. Another story is this. Kind of set the stage for you. There's an author, Philip Yancey, who wrote a lot about Martin Luther King Jr.'s life. He also wrote about a church that he attended in the 60s. 
the pastor there taught that God had consigned blacks or African-Americans to a life as lowly servants. And he did that when he cursed the son of Noah, their ancestors. He said that explains why black people make such good waiters and household servants. He said, watch a black waiter move through a crowded restaurant, swiveling his hips, balancing a tray of food above his head. He's good at that job because that's the job God destined him for. These are the types of things that were being, we're not talking about what was happening outside of the church. This is what was happening in the church. The place that is supposed to be the moral authority of the time. This is some of the stuff that was being said. Another story that you all are familiar with is the story of Rosa Parks, who on December 1st, 1955 in Montgomery, Alabama, was tired after a long day of work and got on a bus and sat where she wasn't supposed to in the front of the bus. You know the story. It ended up with her being arrested. These are some of the things that were happening during this moment in time, this moment in the history of not just our nation but the world. When a young, I believe at the time, 25 or 26-year-old reverend was chosen because the two groups that had come together to do this boycott or this protest couldn't decide on a leader. And so they picked him because he was the compromise. He was their compromise of who they thought would represent both of the groups. Of course, we know him today as Martin Luther King Jr. Soon after he answered the call to begin to lead one of the local boycotts and protests. He didn't realize it would become a national movement. He didn't realize it would later become the civil rights movement. It was just a local boycott, a local march. But soon after that, in Montgomery, Alabama, King was arrested for driving 30 miles per hour in a 25-mile-per-hour zone. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't. Five miles over is slow. I'm not encouraging anyone to speed here. Okay. So five miles over the limit, he was arrested and thrown in jail. It was the first time that he'd encountered the, the backlash for him becoming part of the leadership of the local movement of these mostly black groups that were looking and, and waiting and hoping for change in the way that they were being treated. That following night, and I want to read this because this is powerful, shaken by his jailhouse experience, his first jail experience, he sat up in his kitchen wondering what he should do. He thought to himself, should I resign? Should I call it quits? It was around midnight. He was full of fear. A few minutes before that moment in time, the phone had rung. He had just gotten out of jail. And he picked it up, and somebody screamed the N-word and said, we're tired of you and your mess. And if you aren't out of this town in three days, we're going to blow your brains out and blow up your house. He sat there staring at an untouched cup of coffee 
and he was trying to think his way out. His wife, Coretta, was asleep with her newborn daughter, Yolanda. And this is what King wrote, how he remembered it exactly. He said, I sat at that table thinking about that little girl and thinking about the fact that she could be taken away from me at any minute. And I started thinking about a dedicated, devoted, and loyal wife who was over there asleep. And I got to the point that I couldn't take it anymore. I was weak. And I discovered then that religion had to become real to me. And I had to know God for myself. And I bowed down over that cup of coffee. I will never forget it. I prayed a prayer, and I prayed out loud that night. I said, Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. I think I'm right. I think the cause that we represent is right. But Lord, I must confess that I'm weak now. I'm faltering. I'm losing my courage. And it seemed at that moment that I could hear an inner voice saying to me, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. And lo, I will be with you even until the end of the world. I heard the voice of Jesus saying still to fight on. He promised to never leave me, to never leave me alone. Never alone, never alone. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. That moment in the kitchen that he had an encounter with God is what changed the course of the civil rights movement as we know it today. Now I'm going to say something that I don't want to ruffle any feathers in here. But I really believe that one of the reasons we have not seen the progress that we would hope to have seen since his passing, because it seemed like things accelerated so quickly, and then it just kind of tapered off. I believe that one of the reasons that we're seeing some of the unrest that we're seeing even in the last couple of years with race relations and things all over this nation, I believe it's this, because the leaders that have tried to, on both sides of the issue, begin to negotiate or deal with it or bring healing, have left a very important ingredient out. And that's God. I want to say this to you, and this is a very complex thing to talk about, and I don't want to oversimplify it tonight. But I believe it's this. I believe that some of the things that he fought for whether it be with African Americans or any other group who's in the minority, I believe it's the church's responsibility to lead the way, to not give up and stand in the gap for the communi- these communities. I believe it wholeheartedly. When this church or any other church can't get along with the church that's a block away, how are we ever going to see things improve in communities with the kind of history that they have? I really believe that God's actually calling us, and this is totally separate from what I want to communicate tonight, but that's okay. I believe that God's actually calling us as the church to reinsert, if you will, the, the, the purpose of God in our everyday life as we see some of these wounds healed. See, I believe that these wounds can only be healed if we allow God to begin to heal those wounds. I know that sounds simple, and you think, oh, you, must, you just must be... You, you just, you don't get it. It's more complex than that. It really isn't. Guess, you know why I know? Because we've tried everything else. 
And the only difference between what happened with Martin Luther then, Martin Luther King Jr. then, and what's happening today, the only difference is, the only, if you break everything down, the only missing ingredient is what he said right here. And actually, actually, as a matter of fact, he began to write about that every time he encountered injustice, every time he encountered another brick wall, every time he encountered another difficult time where he thought, this is going to end here, we can't fight anymore. He said he would think back to this moment where Jesus told him, I'll never leave you. Never leave you alone. You know, I thought about this. We've got this lady who's coming this in February 2nd through the 5th. She's a wonderful prophet. We had David Wagner here on, I think, December 18th. And we've had other people before. And many of you have received a promise from God. Some of it didn't even come through a man. It was just in your personal time with him. You received a promise. What would happen if we stopped seeking the next experience with God and referred back to what he's already said to us and lived based on that? You know, Martin Luther King Jr. didn't, from that moment on, he knew that God was behind his fight. He knew that what he was doing and the cause he was fighting for was right. And he knew that because God spoke, all it took is for God to encounter him once, and he changed the face of this nation. Some of us have been encountered 15 times by God, and we're still sitting waiting for that golden scepter to drop down and touch us on our head. Oh, preach it, Dan. That's good. That's good. All right. Yeah, you're right. Think about this. He has an encounter with God in his kitchen. Three nights later, a bomb explodes on his porch, sending shards of glass throughout his house. I'm just, I'm just praying that. I, this is, you know, it's kind of funny. I'm, I'm praying for a generation of people who have this kind of grit and determination, that when God speaks to them, they do what he's asked them to do. See, that was a very weak, it was like, it was like a half clap because that requires us to actually work and do something. It's like, well, we, we played, a, we, I went out yesterday with my mom. Um, we went out and, and, parents have a little boat. We got out on the boat and took, I think my mom invited me along because she had six kids with her. I figured that out later, that she couldn't have done it on her own. She was like, honey, I'd love for you to come out. And I thought, great, I have a couple appointments in the morning, I'll do those, and then we'll go out. And then I got there, I'm like. So when we got, we we went to this little island that's out in Sarasota Bay, and we got out on the island, and, and we're having a good time, and and the kids, I could tell, were kind of getting bored pretty quick because there's no iPads or Xbox Ones on the island. And so I thought, um, I know how to do money. I don't know why, but that's what I thought. So I said, kids, I have, I'm going to hide a treasure on this island. And it's a big island. And I said, the first one to find it gets $10. Wow, I wish that was it. <laughs> yeah, except I did it three times. It cost me 30 We'll get to that in a moment. So I, the only thing I could find was these bright blue goggles. So I said, I'm going to hide these goggles on this island. And there was six kids. And I said, if you find them, you're, the first person to find them gets $10. And so I made up these silly clues that rhymed, and we were doing this whole game. 
and the kids had a great time for hours, and they traipsed up and down that place, and it was great. Well, the second time that I did it, I buried it, just to make it a little more difficult. And so I gave them a clue, and they kind of figured out the area it was in, and they finally narrowed it down to about a five-foot diameter area. And they said, now, based on this clue, and they're talking to one another, I think it's underground. And they're looking at me. They're like, is it underground? And I was like, yep. And they have a five-by-five-foot area, and there's six of them. They can't even barely stand in that small of an area. Right? And they, they were like, well, we've got to find it. I was like, find it. They were like. I said, nobody wants $10? Yeah, we want $10. I said, well, get it. Listen, when I was a kid, for a dollar, I would have dug that thing up like a dog. I'd have, <laughs> I'd have kicked him out of the way. I don't care. I was. I kid you not, if my mom was here, she could tell you. They were just kind of kicking a couple of I said, dig. <laughs> Finally, one of them got it. It took them. And this thing was about three inches below the surface. No joke. All it was was a layer of pine needles on top. They just scraped back the pine needles. They would have seen it this much. It took them, without exaggeration, 25 minutes to find something this deep in a five, five, five foot area. No joke. Now, my point in telling you that is this. If you want to know why things have not progressed as fast as we'd like to, it's because we, not just kids, collectively as a generation, we don't have the will and the determination. God can say to us, if you do this, you're going to accomplish this. And we sit there going, could you confirm it with a sign and wonder? And they kept coming to me. One of the clues was, it's by a right-angle tree. And there was only one right-angle tree. No, I kid you not. And then I took, I took a giant white shell about yay big, the only one on the island, and stuck it in the middle of the brown pine needles. It's, I mean, it was like totally out of place, right? One of them picked up the shell, and they're like, What's this shell doing here? And then tossed it to the side. <laughs> and then one of them figured out that shell probably marked the spot. So they were like, where was that shell? And she was like, I don't know. I think it was over there. And it wasn't. It was over here. I, I, I learned, when they were done, I looked at my mom and I said, boy, we can learn a lot from this, can't we? It's not that we have lazy children, although we could. It's this. We want so much confirmation. We want God to write it in the sky. We want, and when He's already given us the commandment in Isaiah to seek justice, to defend the orphan, to plead the case for the widow, and we see a widow walking down the street and we're like, God, if you want me to help her, let her trip right now. It's true, right? Here's, here's the thing. Because I, I like to study great people and try to figure out what made them great. And I really believe the defining moment in his life was when he had an encounter with God 
And God said to him, the cause that you're doing, what you're doing, is exactly what you're supposed to be doing. And told him, I'm never going to leave you, and I'm always going to be there with you. And from that moment on, he never looked back. You can actually see from that quote or that, that story, that, he, that those were his words that I read, you can actually see some of these things that God told him weaved in and out of the stories throughout the rest of his life. When he would speak, you would see some of these themes come back up because he always drew from the well of that one encounter. I've been telling my wife lady, lately, I don't want another word. I don't need another encounter. I want to live from where God's already positioned me to go and live and accomplish what he's already told me to do. Some of you know exactly what God's asked you to do. You just need to do it. Right? Yeah. Yep. Proverbs 31 says this. Open your mouth for the mute. For the rights of all the unfortunate, open your mouth. Judge righteously and defend the rights of the afflicted and needy. Well, I don't know how much more plain you can make it than that. One of the encounters, um, I'm going to read a couple encounters here. Just to inspire you with his life. He had was with Mayor um, Daly from Chicago. And Mayor Daly struck a deal with them and said they were boycotting at the time. And he said, if you'll stop your boycott, we'll give you police protection the next time you march through the city of Chicago so that nothing happens to you. And so Martin Luther King Jr. got them to stop boycotting, came back to the mayor and said, we'd like to schedule the date that we march through the city. And we need your police protection as promised. And Mayor Daly basically double-crossed him and said, no, you can't march. And he issued an ordinance right there in the city that so, said there's no marches allowed. And so they met together with the civil rights leaders and Mayor Daley and other politicians to try to get to the bottom of why this happened and how they can get past it. And the, the folks that were there that wrote about it said that Martin Luther King Jr. sat there for a while and he didn't say a word. He just listened. And he was, of course, upset, but he just listened. And after a while, he finally said this. He said, let me say that if you're tired of demonstrations, I'm tired of demonstrating. I'm tired of the threat of death. I want to live. I don't want to be a martyr. There are moments when I doubt if I'm going to make it through. I'm tired of getting hit. I'm tired of being beaten. I'm tired of going to jail. But the important thing is not how tired I am, but the important thing is to get rid of the conditions that led us to march. He said, now, gentlemen, you, don't know, you know we don't have much. We don't have much money. We don't have much education. And we don't have political power. We have only our bodies. And you're asking us to give up the one thing that we have when you say don't march. His speech that day completely changed the mind of the mayor. Soon after that, they began to march through the city with police protection. It's amazing. It's amazing. You know what I love about Martha the Green Jr. is that his whole philosophy, philosophy was to protest, to march, to demonstrate without violence. He did it without violence. That was his number one goal. 
was to do without violence. As a matter of fact, Malcolm X was a huge critic of Martin Luther King Jr. He actually, because Martin Luther King Jr. and others would talk about it as a revolution, and Martin, Malcolm X said it's more like a begolution because you're begging for rights instead of fighting for rights because he refused to be violent. God had given him a clear promise and path to how to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish, and he stuck to it. Even when his contemporaries were critics of him. In Selma, and you can put that up there. There's a picture from Selma here. In Selma, um, in Selma, many historians point to the event as the single moment in which the civil rights movement attained a critical mass of national support. It occurred on a bridge outside Selma, Alabama, when Sheriff Jim Clark turned his policemen loose on unarmed black demonstrators. The mounted troops spurred their horses and ran into the crowd of marchers flailing with their nightsticks, cracking heads, driving bodies to the ground as whites on the sideline whooped and cheered. The troopers shot tear gas into the crowd. Most Americans got their first glimpse of that scene when ABC interrupted its Sunday movement, Judgment at Nuremberg, to show footage. What the viewers saw was, was, was the broadcast from Alabama bore a horrifying resemblance to what they were watching from Nazi Germany. Eight days later, President Lyndon Johnson submitted the Voting Rights Act of 1965 to the U.S. Congress. I wonder if, after being jailed for going five miles over the speed limit, after somebody calling him on the phone saying, I'm going to blow your brains out, I wonder if he did not have that encounter and that promise from God that God would stay with him. If when this began to happen, if they didn't just run and cower in fear. I wonder if today Selma would even be a place that we celebrated if it wasn't for him following what he knew was the promise of God for his life. Anybody in this room want to be great? I don't want to be mediocre. Anybody here say, I just want to be mediocre? I wrote the book on it. I'll get with you. Anybody want to be great, truly great? This is one of my favorites. I only read a couple more. Anybody finding this interesting tonight? I know this is not my traditional sermon, but I just, I've been reading so much about him since Monday, and I just thought, you know what? We're going to talk about this tonight. We'll learn something. In 61, there were students that were getting restless because the civil rights movement weren't progressing as fastly as they would want it to. And they came to him, and they, they were mad, and they were like, listen, we need to we need to amp this up. We need to, I know you're, you're all about nonviolence, but he said we need to do something because it's not happening as fast as we'd like. So this is what King told those students. He said, there is something in this student movement which says to us, we shall overcome. What I love about this, what I'm getting ready to read to you, is it was completely spontaneous and probably inspired by God himself. He said, before the victory is won, some may have to get scarred up, but we shall overcome. Before the victory of brotherhood is achieved, some will maybe face physical death, but we shall overcome. Before the victory is won, some will lose jobs and some will be called communists and reds merely because they believe in brotherhood. Some will be dismissed as dangerous rabble-rousers and agitators merely because they're standing up for what is right. But we shall overcome. We shall overcome because there is something in this universe 
that justifies James Russell Lowell in saying, truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne, yet that scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. And I read this today, and I was like, give me something to do that's crazy, God. I was like, can you imagine we just got up every morning and read that? I'd be in the gross, I was in the grocery store the other day, and my wife said, get organic, tropical punch, Capri Sun for the kids, and they were out. And I was devastated. I mean, we, we are some weak folks, people. Am I, am I being real here tonight? I was devastated because they didn't have, these people are getting beat with nightsticks and bombs thrown on their front porches, and they're saying, we're going to go on, and I felt like giving up because I didn't have Tropical Punch Organic Capri Sun. And we wonder why we're not achieving anything but mediocre. I want to be great in the kingdom of God here on the earth. I want to do great things. I want to see you do great things. But we have got to learn something from some of the men and women that came before us that had great impacts on the earth and realize they were not sissies. That's the title of this message. They were not sissies. I'm going to read to you. One more, and then we'll, then we'll say goodbye. That famous march from Selma finally got to the capital. King addressed those who were beat up, blood running down their heads, scarred, weary, tired, blisters on their feet. He gathered them on the steps of the capital, and he said this. He said, I know that you're asking today how long will it take. I come to say to you this afternoon... However difficult the moment, however frustrating the hour, it will not be long. Because truth pressed to earth will rise again. How long? Not long, because no lie can live forever. How long? Not long, because you still reap what you sow. How long? Not long, because the arm of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. How long? Not long, because my eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord, trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword, and his truth is marching on. He has sounded forth the trumpets that shall ever call retreat. He is lifting up the hearts of man before his judgment seat. Oh, be swift, my soul, to answer him. Be jubilant, my feet, for our God is marching on. Come on. I want to end with the scripture. Galatians 3.28 says that neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free man for there is neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You know, my point of this message tonight is, yes, to maybe refresh your memory and give you a little history lesson tonight. But really, my main point of tonight is to make you realize that if God's given you a promise, 
The only difference from where some of us are right now and being great is actually believing that promise and getting up and going and doing it. I want to tell you this. I can only account for myself. I can't even, I can't account for my wife. I can't account for anybody else. I can't account for my mom or dad. But I can account for myself. Our God is marching on. And let me tell you something. I'm marching with him. You say, what are you talking about, Dan? You're talking about the civil rights movement? No. I'm talking about any cause, any person, any people, any orphan, any widow, any injustice, I believe it's time for the church of Jesus Christ to march on and to do what we've been called to do, and that is hang and hold up the banner of love and justice over this whole entire region and city. Are you with me tonight? you with me? Let's stand our feet and let's pray together. Yeah.